גן עדן. כל אחד עובר מבול. It always baffled me to learn that the eye is actually really bad at seeing in some way. The part of the eye that actually can't see is not the periphery, but the center. Where the optic nerve is in the center of one's eye inside the pupil, there's actually a black spot. There's no possibility of vision there. There's no cones and rods, so there's not the possibility of actually getting a visual image. Instead, our brain fills in the center of our vision. Whether or not we can ever actually see it, and we can't really, the center of our vision is imaginary. It's our brain filling in the gaps. It's doing what Photoshop and AI can do now, in which you can simply just have it guess at what might be there. You would think, perhaps, that it's not the center of our vision to which this would be affected, but the periphery, the edges where our brain might fill in the gaps, trying to help us get more information about what's around us. But the edges are all there just fine. The issue is what's right in the middle. And in some way, this is indicative of so many problems that we face in processing new information, is that we rarely see what's right in front of us, both literally and figuratively. When something is familiar to us, when we recite it over and over, when it becomes part of our day-to-day -day life, when we see it all the time or hear it all the time or talk about it all the time, we lose perspective on it because it's too familiar, too close. And we need to back up in order to see it from the periphery rather than from the center. I think we might need to do the same thing with the Shema. Of course, this week when we read Parashat Vet Hanan, we have many famous texts that we read. We have the Ten Commandments recited the second time, slightly different than the first time, but nonetheless on the same themes. We have Moses recalling the importance of observing the mitzvot, and we have the very famous line, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, according to the Christian system, of Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Several things are interesting about this that, again, I don't think we see because it's too close. The first thing I want to note is that this line is actually not a portion unto itself. The system of chapters and verses that was devised by mostly Christian Bible readers in order to make it easier to cite texts in the medieval period is very useful, but it's also somewhat distracting because it doesn't show us what's really there. It adds divisions where there aren't any. The Masoretic text, which preceded it by some time and which retains a Jewish tradition of readership, divides things differently. And there you have open and closed portions, marked often by kind of paragraph divisions in the text of the Sefer Torah itself. But the Shema, that one line, is not actually a unit of text on its own. It's connected with verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, where at the end of verse 9, with the paragraph we call Ve'ahavta, you have the end of a closed portion. There's a little samech in many Masoretic texts to tell you that it is closed, satum. So actually, the Shema is not a freestanding entity. The Shema is verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, nine in some way. And the fact that we divide it into the Shema and the Vehafta is already itself kind of an illusion. So that's one thing that I think we don't really appreciate is the way in which these verses are all linked together in one textual unit. But the other thing that goes with that is the fact that we also don't appreciate how strange the Shema really is. It doesn't really make a lot of sense when you look at it from a grammatical point of view. 
Shema Yisrael, we translate as Hear Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. But the implication of the English there is that there's two independent phrases, Adonai is our God and Adonai is one. But there's no and in the Hebrew. And there's no reason that there couldn't be one, there just isn't one. Since there's no and, it's a bit strange, actually, that Adonai is repeated. It might make more sense if the phrase read, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Echad. Listen, Israel, Adonai, our God, is one. So we don't really notice because it's just so familiar to us because we say it twice a day because for many Jews, even those who are completely secular, the Shema is something familiar. We don't notice actually that the verse doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense and doesn't necessarily match what most people imply when they say the Shema. Part of the challenge might be grammar itself. Of course, the text of the Torah is not normally vocalized. The vocalization, that is the, the vowels that are added in, the nikud, is a system that's developed in the medieval period by a group of people named the Masoretes by academics. Theoretically, all the Masoretes did is write down a tradition that they already knew about, a tradition that goes back to the biblical period. Although the idea that the accurate reading of the text would be preserved from biblical ancient Israel all the way up until the Masoretes who lived in the 9th and 10th century CE in the medieval period, it's kind of unlikely. So we have to also, in addition to getting rid of the verses and the idea of verses, we also have to be willing to look past the vowels. Although we trust the Masoretes, they're not themselves part of the Torah, and as a result, somewhat flexible sometimes. The rabbis love to play with, oh, well, actually, don't read it this way, read it that way. We have innumerable places in which we have what's called kativ kari, in which we read something one way, even though it's pronounced a different way. That's not at all unusual in the Torah. And it goes to show that we have a certain degree of skepticism, healthy skepticism, I think, about the vocalization of the words themselves. In that spirit, I want to suggest that actually we might be vocalizing the Shema all wrong. It might not be the Shema at all, but rather the Shama. Now, for the grammar nerds amongst us, and for, forgive me for those who aren't grammar nerds, but Shema, the way that it's vocalized with a Shava and then a Patach underneath it, is read as the Tzivui, the imperative in Hebrew, i.e. the command form. Shema Israel, listen Israel, hear Israel. But there's another way that you could vocalize the same letters without changing the letters at all, but with different vowels, which would be to have a kamatz under the first letter instead of a shva, in which case it would be shema Yisrael. It doesn't sound terribly different, shema, shama, but actually the meaning would be very different. If it said, as I think maybe it was meant to, shama Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, then it helps us understand the phrase very differently. That would mean Israel heard Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. The reason I think that makes a lot more sense is because the Shema we know historically was meant to be read immediately after reading the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments themselves are a bit ambiguous about what exactly the Israelites hear. There's a whole plethora of rabbinic traditions debating exactly how much did the Israelites here before they did a runner and freaked out and ran away. The most 
well-established tradition, and I think the most reliable tradition, is that the Israelites only heard the first two commandments. The first commandment being God describing God's self, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the second commandment being, you shall have no gods before me. That is, one commandment about God's identity and the other commandment about God's unity. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. I think, and I know it might be quite radical to say, we've been reading the Shema all wrong for quite a long time. Actually, the Shema is not a command, but a description. The Shema is telling us the Israelites at Mount Sinai only heard two commandments. They heard commandment one, Adonai is our God, and they heard commandment two, Adonai is one, alone, singular. But they didn't hear the rest. What would it mean if we thought about the Shema differently? If we thought about it not as a command, but as a description? What would it mean for us to remind ourselves every day, twice a day, that the Israelites only actually heard two commandments? What would it mean to separate those two commandments in some way from the rest of them, to distinguish them as the ones which were actually heard versus the ones which Moses relayed to us? I think the context of the verse It's fact that it can't be separated from what comes next, in which we're instructed to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with everything we have. And I think the fact that the vocalization is often so uncertain, combined with the well-known ancient tradition of reading the Ten Commandments immediately before reciting the Shema, should make us think differently about what the Shema exactly is. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the oldest known fragment of the Hebrew Bible was something called the Nash Papyrus, which dates from the Maccabean Revolt around 150 BCE. It's a tiny piece of papyrus on which someone had written the Ten Commandments, an introductory verse after them, and then the Shema, and what seems to be the beginning of the Ve'afta, although it's broken off. Scholars think that this little papyrus was something that was of personal use, that someone would have rolled it up and kept it in a pocket or on a necklace, and they would use it in order to recite the Shema twice a day. But critical is that they would recite the Ten Commandments and then the Shema. That must mean that there's more of a link between the two things, that actually the Shema is not a random, grammatically incorrect sentence that says, hey, listen up, God is one, God is our God but rather that it describes something about the Ten Commandments, that it reminds us of the fact that the Israelites only actually heard those first two commandments, the two which frame everything that comes after, the love and affection and the obligation that Moses goes on to describe. I don't know if I'm right, and... You know, no one can really verify for sure unless anyone's going to resurrect Moses and find out what exactly he meant. But... I do think that we should be willing to look at those things, even the things which are in the center of our vision differently. We shouldn't be scared of reevaluating things that we think we know well. It's often the things that we are closest to that we have the hardest time understanding differently and getting a new perspective on. And for Jews, the Shema is absolutely that sort of thing. It's the thing which stands in the pupil of our eye, in the center of our vision, which is the center in many ways of our thinking about religion and belief. And yet, at its very root, might mean something very different than we often think. Perhaps it's worth entertaining the idea that rather than it's a Shiva, it might be a Kamatz. Perhaps it's worth thinking about the Shama as the Shama. And perhaps it's worth considering what it might mean for us to recite a verse that doesn't command us, doesn't say, hey, listen, but instead says, did you know 
the Israelites actually only heard these two things. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Shabbat Shalom.